Go ahead and open your Bible to Exodus chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. And Exodus chapter 14 has for its purpose statement in verse 4, God getting glory. God says this at the end of it. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, glory is what what we were created for as human beings. It's what we're recreated for in Jesus Christ. Um, It's the warp and the woof of the whole Bible. God's glory stitches together every part of the Old and New Testament, but it can be kind of elusive. What is glory? And how exactly does God get it? What is glory and how does God get it? Those are the two questions that this passage is going to answer for us this morning. So I'll be reading all of Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let the Israelites go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud. And the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is God's word. So what is glory? Glory is a word that we're not used to hearing in English, but it's a category that we're familiar with. In Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod, which means weight or heaviness. So in in English, when, when someone has glory, when someone has weight, we say, man, they're really throwing their weight around. That shows that they have power. Or when somebody is really important within a particular skill set, a discipline, or social circles, we say that they carry a lot of weight. Or you can think of an Olympian who wins the gold medal. They're at the number one spot on the podium. Above everybody else, the gold medal is around their neck. Their flag is raised above every other flag, and their national anthem is playing. And everybody sees that that athlete is receiving glory. So when God tells the Israelites that he is going to get glory for himself, he's saying that he's going to throw his weight around. He's going to knock Pharaoh off of the number one spot of the podium and show that he alone belongs there. And God gets glory through a number of ways in this passage. The first is through his plan. God gets glory through his plan. Go back to verses 1 to 4. God says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth between Migdal and the sea. In front of baal Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is giving the Israelites, through Moses, coordinates. He's setting up a military plan for them to defeat the Egyptians. We have to read the first couple verses here within a military framework. And even before this, at the end of chapter 13, Israelites, the Israelites are described as an army coming out. 
So God wants to dangle Israel out in front of the Egyptians to lure them out. That's the first part of his plan. And then he's going to crush them. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that they run after them, and then he's going to demolish them. He's taking the Israelites like a mouse before a cat and putting them out there. And then Pharaoh will realize, like, like General Akbar, it's a trap! It's too late. Can't go back. That is God's plan. God is using the weakness. God is using the frailty. God is using the unpreparedness of this motley bunch of renegade slaves, the most unprepared and ill-equipped people to take on the leading military power of the world during that period of time. God is using the weakness of the Israelites to shame the strength of the Egyptians. He's using their unpreparedness and their, their clumsy organization to bring to naught the sophisticated war machine of Egypt. That's a part of his plan. God uses the weak to shame the strong, our inability and our unpreparedness to accomplish his great purposes. I don't know if you were able to read uh, David Green's most recent prayer letter. He has this great reflection at the end of it on Jeremiah 29.11. It's a verse that you may be familiar with. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Beautiful verses, right? But David goes on to point out that Jeremiah is given these words in the midst of national collapse. He's beaten, he's imprisoned multiple times. Jeremiah is going to live to see Solomon's temple, the most exquisite piece of craftsmanship in architecture in Israel, and possibly one of the most amazing things in the ancient world in terms of the volume of wealth and skill that is poured into this temple for God's dwelling. Jeremiah is going to see that flatten to the ground and Judah go into exile. That's the backdrop for God giving him these words about wonderful plans that I have for you. And it's easy to think, yeah, yeah some, some plans. Huh, Lord? Right? Some plans. Maybe you uh, last year wanted to go on vacation with your extended family. You couldn't wait to see the kids and the grandkids, and all the plans had to change. You and a yearly trip to the beach just nixed. And then this year, you're really excited about it. You got it on the calendar again, only to find out that that um, nagging knee pain that your doctor has been talking to you about for years has gone from being imminent to immediate. You have to have knee surgery, and you're going to miss out on seeing the kids and the grandkids for two years in a row. And you think, Lord, that's that's your plan? Really, now is your timing? That's what you want to do? Some plan, huh? But what seems like crazy and indiscriminate circumstances to us is really a part of God's incredible plan, even if we don't know it, even if we don't feel like it. And sometimes we can think, okay, Lord, if you would just show me all the details of your plan, If you would just give me the play-by-play, then I would be okay with this or that difficulty. But the remarkable thing is, the Israelites did have God's play-by-play. That's what verses 1 to 4 were. God says, listen, I'm going to put you out there. You're going to go camp. Pharaoh's going to think that you guys are stuck. I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to pursue you. Bam, I'm going to crush him. He gave them the very specific details of what he was going to do within the moment, within that day. And they still panicked. Look at verse 10, 10 to 12. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? The Israelites are panicking. Things are going exactly according to God's plan, and they freak out. They have every single detail they could possibly want. It it is really gracious of the Lord that he does show us his plans. I mean, God does not give us the blow-by-blow, the the play-by-play for our lives like he did for the Israelites in this moment, but he gives us the general sketch of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what Christian living is like in a fallen world. You see this over and over again in the Gospels. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, and he pulls aside the disciples for the third time, and he says, guys, listen, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the, 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 the leaders and the rulers. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. That's the plan. God, Jesus reveals God's plan of salvation to the disciples. And in the Gospels, everything goes exactly according to plan. They go to Jerusalem. Jesus is betrayed. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. He's nailed to the cross. He's laid in the tomb. And three days later, he rises from the dead. But in the midst of everything going exactly according to God's plan, the disciples panic. They freak out. Nobody sticks by him. They all leave him. Why is it that when things go exactly according to God's plan, we panic? Why do we do that? Well, look at verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? We don't like when things go according to God's plan because God's plan involves dying. It involves dying. That's what the 10th plague taught the Israelites. In order for the Israelites to let go, be be freed from the bondage and slavery in Egypt, somebody had to die. God took the firstborn of the Egyptians, but that didn't let Israel off the hook. Somebody still had to die in Israel's place, and so Israel had the Passover lamb. In order for God's plan of salvation to be accomplished, somebody has to die, and we have to die. Whether that's the the figurative little tiny deaths of taking up our own cross day in and day out, like losing the uh, acclaim of your coworkers because you stand with integrity in a particular situation when everybody else in the company is trying to askew the rules and say this is a gray area, but you say, no, this is right and this is wrong and I'm not going to do what's wrong and I do what's right. Dying to the acclaim of, of your peers Dying to our pride as we have to ask our kids, our husband, our wife, for forgiveness, for the petty little ways that we snip at them and treat them. Dying to the indwelling sin that continues to knock at our door after years of fighting it, decades. Whether it's these figurative deaths that Jesus calls us to, or the very real possibility of death that many Christians around the world face, we panic 
when things go according to God's plan, because God's plan involves death, which is humiliating, which is it's disgusting, it's protracted, it's painful. But there's life on the other side. And it takes a certain amount of faith and hope to see that, that we so often lack. God gets glory through his plan in spite of our panic by defeating our enemies. Our panic doesn't stop God from completing his plan nor gaining glory. And we see that in verses 13 and 14 and 30. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This is what Moses says in response to the Israelites' panic. It's kind of a, a play on words. He says, don't look at the Egyptians, because when you look at them again, you won't be able to see them. They'll be dead. Moses wanted the Israelites to take their view off of their circumstances, which they could see and were chaotic and uncontrollable, to the unseen God who was in complete control of those circumstances. He wanted to change their attitudes to that of fear and trepidation focused on their surroundings and their enemies to that of reverence and awe focused on the one who was going to save them from those enemies. Because God gets glory through his plan in spite of our panic by defeating our enemies. And in this singular event, the crossing of the Red Sea, the splitting of it, God's people are delivered And destruction is wrought in this one singular event. And the only thing that separates the Israelites from the Egyptians is that they are tied to God's promises and his mediator. Look at verse 15. This is a really strange quirk in this passage. Verse 15 says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. But Moses didn't cry out to the Lord. Look at verse 10. At the end of verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. What the scripture is saying here is that God's mediator and God's people are so intimately united that when we appropriate the promises of Jesus by faith, we are so connected to Jesus Christ that when we cry out, he cries out. God responds to Moses as if he were talking, even though it was the people. And later in Exodus 32, when Moses pleads for forgiveness that he would be blotted out, it's as if the people prayed for forgiveness and are saved. We are so united to God's mediator by faith that when we cry out, he cries out. And when he prays, we pray. It's that that connection that makes all the difference between deliverance and and destruction. And this isn't a salvific event. This is a strengthening of faith. You you see in verse 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord 
And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But this wasn't initial belief. It was a strengthening of existing belief that was weak and that was limping and that was faltering. Because if Israel had not believed in God's promise previously at the 10th plague, they would have been wiped out then and there. You see, what makes the 10th plague unique and all the other plagues? You have the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the sixth, and so many more plagues. What makes plagues one through nine and plague 10 different is that in plagues one through nine, God made a distinction between the Israelites, between his people, and the Egyptians after the fact. Locusts came, hail came, boils came, It struck the Egyptians, it didn't strike the Israelites, they didn't have to do anything. But on the 10th plague, on the 10th plague, the people had to act ahead of time. God told the Israelites what he was going to do before judgment came. He said, listen, I'm going to visit you. I'm going to bring judgment. But here's the way that you can be saved. You take the blood of the Passover lamb and you smear it on the doorpost. The difference had to be claimed ahead of time, before judgment came, not after. And so Israel had already demonstrated faith, demonstrated belief in God's promises, and yet they needed it strengthened because we, like them, have such weak and faltering and limping faith. And what's beautiful from our vantage point is we can look back and see an even greater plan in spite of even greater panic in the defeat of even greater enemies, because God's plan of salvation didn't just end at the Red Sea, but it would be stitched through the conquest, into the heartache of the exile, to the sober joy of the return, and into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who, when Jesus himself set his nose like a flint and went to Jerusalem, would bring about both deliverance and destruction in this simultaneously, in a singular event, in his death on the cross. And by being united in faith to him and his resurrection life, his promises, when he cries out to God, we cry out to God. When we cry out to God, he cries out to God. We are saved in faith and being united to Christ. The even greater plan that works in spite of our greatest panic, the defends us and defeats our greatest enemies and brings us to the greatest faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this living parable in the Old Testament that shows us what it means to be united to your mediator, what it means to see you work in spite of our panic and even through our panic, and that reminds us that we are not as stable or as strong or as significant as we think we are, but we are weak, that we limp along, and that we need your loving care. We thank you for all this. Would you, would you strengthen us now, even this day, for this week, for the time ahead? When things don't go according to our plans, know that it is according to yours. When we panic, comfort us knowing that it cannot stop your great love for us. And show us all of the ways that as you work in our hearts and, and minds, you're, you're defeating the little enemies, the little deaths, the little crosses, the little resurrections you call us to. And give us the confidence to look forward to a day when, when we can face death and know that there is hope on the other side. We praise you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.